Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Jill Watts, Professor of History at California State University, San Marcos, to discuss her new and incredibly timely book, The Black Cabinet, The Untold Story of African Americans and Politics During the Age of Roosevelt, published by Grove Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Podcast, Jill. Uh, Thank you for having me, Susan. I I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. So the Black Black Cabinet interrogates the formation of an informal cabinet of Black sociologists, lawyers, economists, journalists, and others who deeply influenced Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. And the book opens with Mary McLeod Bethune, but the characters are really wide-ranging. You've written books about important Black American icons, for example, Hattie McDonald, uh, McDaniel, sorry, Black Ambition, White Hollywood, and God, Harlem, USA, The Father Divine Story. What brought you to this history of an institution rather than one person? And, And how did that change how you approached this political history? (laughs) <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, I've always been interested in the Great Depression in the 1930s. I think that goes back to my grandparents who told stories about the era. And in terms of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, my one set of grandparents thought he was amazing. And my other set didn't like him at all. <laughs> so there's been that ongoing debate in my family. And I've always also been interested in African-American history. That was uh, the field of study that I took as an undergraduate. And I grew up in a predominantly black community. And um, taking those courses in college really opened my eyes up to how the community came to be where it was, but how little other people knew about the black community. So I've always been interested in how overall marginalized Americans resisted white racism. And I was mostly working through cultural channels, uh, in God Harlem, USA, I was exploring the, the religious aspect. And then in Hattie McDaniel, uh, performative arts and film. And I, I had decided I wanted to write a book about Will Hayes, who was the Hollywood film censor, because he has such a heavy hand in how um, these stereotypes that we see of African-Americans and, and other people and women uh, were depicted on the screen. screen. So I was working on this Will Hayes biography, Susan, and you'll like, I mean, Hayes was the chair of the Republican Party before he became Hollywood film censor. And that was one of the reasons. He wow. Was, yeah. <laughs> well, it's wow. One, yeah. Yeah. When he ran Harding, Warren G. Harding's campaign in 1920 and was appointed postmaster general. And he really resented that because he thought he could get a better appointment than that. And um, Hollywood came to him and recruited him. But I was going through his papers and I ran across some documents from African-Americans saying to Hayes, well, now the Republicans are back in office, we expect some appointments. And um, one of these uh, letters came from Robert Terrell, who was actually associated with the Roosevelt and Taft administration. And I thought, oh, this is interesting because I, I know they don't get back in in the 20s, but immediately what came to mind was the Black Cabinet. And that's a group that I teach about, but just very briefly. And I thought, huh, you know, I, I want to know more about the Black Cabinet. I always try to write books about things that I want to know more about, that books like I, I want to read that I need to read. 
And about the same time, it's January 2009, and Barack Obama is becoming inaugurated as, as the president. And I read an interview with Dorothy Height, who was an activist and a leader in the Black Women's Club movement. Uh, and, and she's in her 90s. And she was a protege of the educator, Mary McLeod Bethune. And Dorothy Height is coming to the, the Obama inauguration, President Obama's inauguration. And she says, it took a lot of people, a lot of work to get here. And I thought, she's right. It's the Black cabinet that lays the groundwork mm-hmm. for the federal voice that African-Americans are able to um, garner in that period of time, but open that door eventually that leads to, to Obama's inauguration. So, so that's how I came to write, write this book. Um, before we start talking about the beginnings of the Black Cabinet and its various iterations, I, you know, I was thinking as I read the book about the sources, and you have so many direct quotes from people about their thoughts and their feelings. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the types of resources that you use to to write this this book that really weaves together the kind of expect information that one would get from the archives, but also some very unexpected material. It was, it was a challenge because the Black Cabinet was unsanctioned by uh, FDR. And so they had to operate in, in secret. So because it's an unofficial group and they really shouldn't be meeting, they, they really have to cover up their activities. But Part of it was, it, it's like detective work, like any historical work you do. It's like being a detective and, and, and looking for the clues and, and tracing things back. A lot of what I got was from government documents, even though they're, they're meeting in secret. There's this traces of their influence, and you can see these moments where they're reflecting or talking about their experiences as African-American advisors in this very hostile Washington, D.C., but um, also um, a big source is Mary McLeod Bethune's papers because she, when she arrives, she really becomes the center of that group. And mining oral histories that were taken with people at, long after they were in the Black Cabinet, memoirs. Uh, but the, probably one of the best sources that I found was the African-American press, which was a lifeline to, uh, to the African-American community, the Black press was used by Black cabinet members to pressure the administration. And a number of Black cabinet members were actively associated with the press, uh, either as journalists or editors. And so they were using the Black press to leak information and to push their activities. And the Black press also regarded Black cabinet members as stars. So covering what they were doing uh, was was a big, big deal. It was something that uh, brought readers they wanted to. They wanted to read uh, the stories about the Black Cabinet because it was such a important point of pride for the Black community to have African Americans brought into the executive branch and advising presidents. That was regarded as as an, a really significant milestone. So, so it 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 really is. So it was it, it was like having. It, it took a long time to do because it was like having this all this different information and having to kind of piece it together like a large puzzle to figure out what was going on behind the scenes. Thank you. No, it's really helpful. And and I can, I can hear that in the, in the prose. What, 
since you mentioned the black press and it really functions almost as a character throughout the book, but I think a lot of people, especially who have an international audience, aren't as aware that there was this uh, parallel journalism happening and how extensive it is. If you could just say a couple sentences about where the black press was, was it just in the major cities? Was it all across the United States and what kind of impact it had? The black press is really, really significant to the African-American community historically. And if you look at the origins of the black press in the United States, it's separate. And it's separate because the the white press, I'll, I'll call it the white press, covers issues that are important to white people and pushes ideas that are important to white people. And the black press originates in the period of abolition before slavery is over virtually as a as as a a, a place to advocate for the needs of Black Americans t- for the end of slavery. So it has an activist role when it first originates. And um, it spreads throughout the country. And by, by the time we're talking in the 20th century, most American, major American cities have a Black newspaper or even two, in some cases three, depending upon how large the Black population is. The other thing that people don't know about the Black press is Unlike the local press of of that period of time, African-American newspapers have national circulation. The the larger papers, the Chicago Defender, for example, is circulated and distributed throughout the country. The Pittsburgh Courier, um, which which is a press that was very much a a part of the Black Cabinet, both the Defender and the Courier covered the Black Cabinet extensively. Um, The California Eagle, which was a Los Angeles paper, it, it, it circulated throughout the country. So the black press is a lifeline for African Americans because, for the most part, the the national media or their local papers ignore the issues, the legislation, the news that's significant to the black community, and and don't report on it. I mean, specifically, just ignore African Americans or actively censor the news so that black Americans don't get information that they need. The black press fills that gap, and and. It's a significant gap, and it's important for mobilizing the black population as well as informing the black population. So, so I, I think you're right. It's like another uh, character within the within the book, within the narrative of the book, moving forward the agenda of the black cabinet, but also and at times also holding black cabinet members to certain expectations and pushing them to do things. No, and I love that part. I love how on the one hand, they are calling for the Black Cabinet, supporting the Black Cabinet, but they're also the people who see the differences among the members of the Cabinet. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let me bring (laughs) us back for a second. In today's party politics, African Americans are seen as loyal to the Democratic Party, but, but earlier in American history, the Democratic Party is the party creating and maintaining white supremacy such that Black voters were loyal to the Republican Party, to the party of Lincoln. Um, the early shift of the Black cabinet that we're going to move to now, I think really helps to explain how it is that um, there is this movement from Republican to Democrat. And I, I really found that very, very um, helpful. Um, okay, so for the people who haven't read the book, the, the Black cabinet, the book, in, Jill traces several iterations of the Black Cabinet with a focus on the one that was um, advising FDR uh, during the New Deal. But 
there is an earlier black cabinet that constitutes itself um, between 1908, 1932, before FDR becomes president. Can can you just give us a sort of short version of this of this early group that has already sort of laid the pathway towards what will happen in the 30s? Sure, sure. The earlier group, it's really interesting because that goes back to the first part of what you were saying. The earlier group are all Republicans, and it, they're under Republican presidents. They really come about under Theodore Roosevelt and then um, continue under William Howard Taft, and then they're cut off once Woodrow Wilson arrives in uh, the presidency. Wilson's a Southern Democrat, and and he rolls back any kind of gains that African Americans have made in the federal ranks. So in that first group, what's really interesting about it, when Roosevelt is coming into office, he has the very famous uh, dinner with Booker T. Washington, and invites Booker T. Washington to the White House, which became a really controversial flashpoint in terms of white Southern segregationists. But um, he looks to Booker T. Washington for recommendations on who should be serving in his administration. And it's it's interesting, Theodore Roosevelt himself, his, his record on race isn't that great at all. But so what's he doing? Well, to some degree, what he's doing is he's He's flushing out old McKinley appointees, and he's going to get rid of uh, the old McKinley uh, uh, fans who are uh, who are actually opposed to his presidency. You know, he gets into the presidency because McKinley's assassinated. So, so um, he's going to clean out the ranks, and so he's going to bring in some new advisors, and he decides to bring in some African-American advisors and court Booker T. Washington. And he's got his eye to a degree on the black electorate. And and so he begins to build the ranks of black advisors. It's very small, though. And and most of the folks who arrive find that they're really shuttled into offices where they're clerks or they're really not able to exert a lot of influence. He does make a key appointment in a man named Ralph Tyler, who um, comes in and is uh, the auditor in the Department of Navy and has significant power. And Ralph Tyler kind of emerges in that period as the leader of that group. Um, as, as they move into the Taft era, though, t- the Taft White House is very hostile to their presence, and their ranks really begin to begin to decline in terms of number and their influence. And they really battle with Taft to, to really make any headway. And it isn't until the election of 1912 when you know, Taft's having a, a tough time running against Woodrow Wilson, and then he's got Theodore Roosevelt, his old uh, ally there, running against him in the Bull Moose Party that Taft really uh, makes some concessions to the African-American appointees. But as, as, as we all know, Taft loses and Wilson replaces him. And so uh, that, that Black cabinet actually has a final celebration. They, they gathered together in one of Washington, D.C.'s Black eateries that was, um, that, that was one of the best restaurants in the country and served some of the best dishes around, and they gathered together for a, what they called a consolation dinner, and that was the end of them. But Ralph Tyler uh, would write all the way up to the end of his life in the 1920s that the Black Cabinet is going to reemerge. It's it's just a matter of time, and he believed it would reemerge under the Republicans. But when the 20s comes, that doesn't happen. The the Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. They, they actually 
decimate the ranks even further. And under the Hoover administration, the offenses uh, against the black community are considerable. So I hope that that answered your question. No, it's great. And no, and, and in the book, I mean, for the people who are listening, uh, this is all done in such um, kind of dramatic page turning fashion and with a lot of terrific detail which we don't have time for in a podcast, but what I, what I would like to do is sort of focus us more on the reconstitution. So, so we have this interesting self-constituted, and, and this is something that you emphasize in the book. This is an institution that wasn't made by somebody else. It was, it was made by this group of people and kind of became an institution that the Black press was reporting on. It's sort of interesting how they you, you quote from the black press and it sort of seems like they're sitting at the table with, um, with these men. And at this point they are men. Um, and so how is it that we go from this consolation dinner in which it seems like sadly there isn't going to be success in moving qualified black Americans who have these elite degrees into the federal service, into positions of power so that they can influence the making of public policy. How does this turn around um, in the 30s such that the black cabinet comes back uh, in, a, in another form? I, it's a slow transformation when you think about it. it. And in some ways, it's unexpected because as you pointed out, the idea that African Americans would be supporting Democrats and even making gains in a Democratic administration was unthinkable up until Roosevelt. And that's because that party, the Democratic Party, was always associated with the Ku Klux Klan and the White South and the Confederacy. And so, you know, that transformation to the, the transformation of African American voters from Republican voters to Democratic voters. That occurs in this period of time, and to great credit of the Black Cabinet, I believe, they played a real critical role. Um, You have to start with the election of 1932, which is kind of an exciting election in a way, because maybe I should say exciting. It's an election that I think parallels the one we just had to a degree. The nation is at a low, right? The unemployment rate is is enormous. 25% of Americans are unemployed. 25% are underemployed in the black community. It's 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 sometimes double that in the white community. In black communities around the nation, unemployment runs up to 60%. So for African Americans, it's a really desperate situation. And across the nation, you have starvation, especially in the agricultural belt. So we're coming into that 1932 election and the presumption that the Republicans have is, is that the, the black community is going to support them. It's the party of Lincoln. Of course, they're going to support them. They're going to vote for Hoover. And for the most part, they're correct that most African-Americans in 1932 voted for Hoover. But what's significant is, is that um, you have a major defection to the Republic to the, I'm sorry, a major defection from the, Republican Party to the Democrats, and that's through Robert Van, who was the crusading editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, um, an activist lawyer. Um, he, he's a person who's outspoken, and he's been a loyal Republican. And he has delivered votes for the Republican Party amongst African Americans for not just in Pittsburgh, but across the nation for years. And he's aspired 
<laughs> he's aspired to an appointment as any other vote getter would and over and over again been passed up. And so he's becoming increasingly frustrated. And on top of it, he's looking around him. Pittsburgh, the black community in Pittsburgh is suffering dramatically from the Great Depression and the Hoover administration's doing nothing. So uh, it's, and Susan, you know, this first group that we're going to talk about is all men, but it's really women who actually open the door for them. If you think about it, it's at uh, um Emma Guffey Miller's home, who's a very rich white woman whose brother, Joe Guffey, is the political boss of Pennsylvania for the Democrats. And her manicurist is Eva DeBoe Jones. And Eva DeBoe Jones is African-American. She's a migrant from the South. And she, she does white women's nails. She goes from home to home to home and does white, white women's manicures. She herself is also, Eva DeBoe Jones has been a loyal loyal Republican, but she has become disillusioned with the Republican Party. And in 1928, voted Al Smith. And in 1932, is going to be for Roosevelt. And she's also a, a friend and acquaintance of Robert Van. And at one of these manicuring appointments, she says to Emma Guffey Miller, Mr. Van would like to meet your brother. And Emma Guffey Miller arranges that. They're floored that Van wants to defect. Van's actually been trying to make overtures to the Democrats and they've been ignoring him, but they're floored that he wants to defect. And in a meeting with Joe Guffey, he, he, he agrees that he's going to come over and endorse Roosevelt. And he says, what I want for this is an, an appointment and a good one. And that's really basically how it starts. He goes out on the road and makes a very famous speech and encourages African-Americans to turn Lincoln's picture to the wall and says, the debt has been paid. The Republicans are doing nothing for you now, nothing at all. And it's the Democratic Party that has promise. And he encourages African-Americans to vote Roosevelt. And he says this at several stops on the road. It's published in his paper and other papers across the country. And what he's able to do is, in the election of 32, bring a significant number of African-Americans in certain urban areas over to the Democrats. It's not a landslide at all. And in fact, in some areas, Hoover even gained more votes amongst Blacks. But what the Democratic Party senses is that that migration that begins in 32 is significant. And if they continue to court the Black community, they could be able to bring about a shift in, in, in realignment in terms of black voters and, and, and their choices. So it starts there. And Van, in the summer of 1933, gets the appointment. He's appointed to the Justice Department, and he's pretty hopeful that uh, there'll be other appointments to follow. And, um, and there are. It's a little slow. And, uh, and uh, there's a considerable amount of alarm because it looks like as the New Deal starts to come together, not a whole lot's going to change. So, and let me, let me let me stop you there because one of the things, first of all, I loved the story about Van and uh, uh, Jones and this conversation that she's having because it to me it's um, this is such a classic story of patronage politics and and party politics, right? This is this is Black Americans doing what all Americans do, which is try to get things for their constituents and, and constituencies can change. And I, I always find it very, very frustrating when I hear on NPR and the like about how I don't know, Georgia's always been Republican 
like that's mm-hmm. not true. So, so, yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> not at all. And these parties stood for something else and who is part of the parties matters a lot. So I love that part of the book. Um, in, in terms of the new deal, one thing that I found shocking and upsetting and angering about the, about the information that you present is just how, as the new deal rolls out, it is a new deal for white Americans. And I was wondering if you could just address that briefly as, as how the disparity between and, and why there is such a disparity between the relief that is being directed at the white as opposed to the black community. Yeah, I think that that's really important for people to understand that at the beginning of the New Deal, it's an economic recovery program to get the nation back on its feet. And in terms of how Roosevelt and his advisors were thinking, the nation was white people. And as they assembled the programs, it was pretty chaotic in the beginning, too. There were you know, works programs here and works programs there. And it, you know, it was a lot of energy, but it was a lot of confusion. And um, putting programs under various departments or having various departments share a program. But the administrators who are appointed to oversee relief and recovery um, are white. And they're directing relief and recovery at white Americans and, and not taking into consideration the fact that black Americans are suffering at far greater rates. But also, as relief starts to trickle down to the state and local areas, that those state and local administrators are going to give that relief to whites. They're not even going to consider the necessity of giving it to African-Americans. There's an attitude, especially in the South, that black Americans don't actually need relief because they, they live on much far much more modest incomes than whites do. And so they, they live in poverty, so they don't really need to be relieved of it. And it, it, that's so wrongheaded and so clearly wrongheaded to to not just the black community, but other progressive whites that are in, 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 in Roosevelt's mix. Now, they're not really necessarily always in power, but they're, they're kind of around there and in and out of, of, of his orbit. So it's, but what's really important is, is that uh, you have somebody like Robert Reaver, who's going to join the black cabinet in the fall of 1933. Before he joins, he's a, he's an economist and he's teaching at a, uh, agricultural college in the South, and he starts studying this, and he's able to document how how the New Deal is actually not helping Black Americans; it's actually hurting them, because it's not only just bypassing them; it's instituting things like differential wages for Black and white workers, and so it's it's holding back people e- even further that have been suffering far far more greatly from the Great Depression. And Weaver's really important because he's pointing out over and over again, first before he comes to government and then after, if you don't have a broad recovery amongst all sectors, then you'll never have a healthy economy. You'll always have an economy that's gripped with these uh, these, these exponential uh, rises in some people's incomes and then these massive declines. And so you need to find a steady state. And a steady state happens when all Americans can enjoy a... Um, um, uh, equal equal income. So one of the things I thought was fascinating about um, how they document uh, is is the use of data. You have these highly educated men with this remarkable range of degrees, um, and they present the data, and in a way, the data 
is the thing that appears to convince that, that they actually can can put it on paper and have it look so stark and so unfair that as opposed to explaining it, um, this works works better. And that seems to be through throughout the story an important piece that that these people come with so much background from so many different um, disciplines from sociology. Uh, I mean, very much like Du Bois came at uh, people with data as well. But the uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I found that very, very impressive. And I thought that was a sort of interesting strategy in the light of being dismissed. I think that that's What's really important about the data gathering is is so much of our history would have been lost if they hadn't been gathering that data when you think about it. They were able to document, and and their focus was primarily on African-Americans, but they documented lots of disparities in the New Deal for lots of Americans. So, And I think what's really interesting is, is you have this group of amazing social scientists that are coming together with backgrounds in economics, sociology, little bit of history here and there <laughs> and um, at, at law, which I, I, they're able to put together all those different methods from all those different fields at a time when those fields are really exploding in, in the American universities and, and, and sort of take what was academic and kind of confined to the ivory tower and then through their positions in the government, translate it to the American public, or at least translate it to New Deal administrators. That was one of the big frustrations. So as they're doing these, these remarkable kinds of studies, complex uh, explorations, boiling it down into information that the, their, their bosses can understand. And these white bosses will you know, table, table these reports. And it's, it's enormously frustrating for, for the black cabinet members. And, the, and they circle around the way to get the information out eventually is to use the black press basically, or just, later on circle up through um, uh, uh, allies of Roosevelt to get information to Roosevelt. So it's in a lot of ways, it's a really a golden age of uh, governmental studies. If you think about it, uh, you know, Hoover was great for being known as the great engineer and, and insisting on studies being conducted within in the government. But I really think that uh, the New Dealers really deserve that credit. And I think African-American New Dealers, you, you have them graduating from the best universities in the country, and they're bringing this, these techniques in to, uh, to improve the New Deal and, and use it. The problem is, though, uh, Susan, social science methods aren't sexy, if you think about it, right? People don't want to spend hours listening to people talk about social science methods. It's not, uh, it's not engaging. And and so these young men are, are are brilliant, and they've got they've got the data, and they're trying to dramatize it, and it only just goes so far. And they need somebody to come in and really translate that in in a way that's evocative. And that's that's where Mary McLeod Bethune comes in, because she's she's the dynamic, charismatic uh, presence that's able to take all this raw data from all these very scholarly, very serious young men and say, look at this, that the, the nation needs to wake up and realize what they need to do for Before black we move people. To her, because she really is the beginning and the middle of this story. Um, 
just really quickly, one, one thing I noticed was the number of people with degrees from Harvard and it just kept like every other page. And I, mm-hmm. and, and it did make me wonder whether there was something going on at Harvard that it was more accessible or was it the place that people needed a degree from to be in the government? Anyway, I know that's not the focus of your book, but I thought I'd, I'd ask you. No, I think it's an it's an interesting um, point that you make about the number of people who are coming out of Harvard in, in, in the New Deal. I think, as, especially among Af- African Americans, I think it's interesting. Harvard's uh, history with the Black community before the Civil War is not good. There was an attempt to admit Black students in the medical school, and they were virtually they were they were driven out very quickly. After the Civil War, though, um, Harvard's president begins what he calls an experiment. And they again admit African-Americans, black men into um, the medical school. And one of those early admits is Robert Weaver's grandfather, Robert Tanner Friedman. And he's admitted in studies and becomes the first uh, college educated black dentist in the country. So that group of pioneers uh, in a pretty hostile atmosphere that Harvard draws Northerners, but it also draws Southerners. But I have to say, Northern attitudes aren't that good either. So um, I think, though, that that next gen- that first generation, a number of them who are educated after the Civil War return, especially to the Washington, D.C. community. And um, the principal of what's known as the M Street School, which later on becomes Dunbar High, which is the premier high school for our Black Americans in the country from the turn of the century, you know, up through till, well, I mean, even now it's regarded as a a great high school, but the demographics has changed. There's a a great book about Dunbar High School by Alison Stewart, and it's a history of Dunbar High, and her her parents were alumni of Dunbar High. At Dunbar, the principals were from, a lot of them from uh, Harvard. And then Howard University, a lot of the faculty that will be joining the Howard University staff come from Harvard. So especially within the Washington, D.C. community where Robert Weaver and then also his childhood friend who joins the government, William Hastie, there's a real push for young people to aim for Harvard. All people across the country even today rever Harvard as, as the, one, of, one of the best <laughs> in higher education. So at the time, the same, but you had people who had connections to Harvard in the black community that came out of the first generation of Harvard educated um, graduates. And, and they will continue to urge other young African-Americans on, on to Harvard. Then also you have strong connections across the New Deal with Harvard. Uh, FDR was a graduate of Harvard and then other appointees he's drawing from for his brain trust. Uh, are coming out of Harvard and and some of the other Ivy Leagues too, so 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 I think the presence of Harvard is important, and I think it, it shapes the way a lot of the young Black cabinet members thought, at least a core of them. But I also think it shapes their experience with white American racism and their resolve to resist it too, because it was an unwelcome. Let's place. go back to Mary McLeod Bethune and FDR's Black cabinet. What what are they? What is her role, and what is this group able to accomplish in terms of the New Deal to sort of change this previous uh, approach of Democratic presidents that included 
segregation of the federal cafeterias and 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 the the the, the departments themselves along with policy that wasn't addressed to all Americans. So what what does the the sort of the golden age of the uh, black cabinet look like and why is why is she so important? So Mary McLeod Bethune by the time she arrives in Washington DC as an advisor and she comes in 1935 she's incorporated into the National Youth Administration when it's first established as in in a position as kind of a community advisor and as a community advisor <laughs> it's the idea is that that board will meet maybe a couple times a year and she has a different idea about that. She thinks that uh, Roosevelt needs to hear from her a lot more often about Black youth. So she's she's the founder of Bethune-Cookman College. At, now it's called Bethune-Cookman University. She has for many years, by the time she comes to Washington, D.C., been a crusading activist in education and then the Black Women's Club movement. And uh, she's ranked as not only one of the most influential Black women in America, she's ranked as one of the most influential women in America, period. What's significant about Bethune is her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, which dates back to the 1920s. Now, Bethune supports Hoover in 32, and by the time she arrives in 35, she's made a, a migration in her own a political preferences towards Roosevelt. It's interesting because even though she was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, she didn't support uh, FDR in 32, in part because he was running with John Nance Gardner, who was a Texan senator opposed to black voting rights and an upholder of segregation. So when she arrives in 35, she's brought in, like I said, to the National Youth Administration. By 1936, Roosevelt in in the spring appoints her at the head of a separate division within the National Youth Administration that's aimed at providing specifically relief and programs for African-American youth, addressing their, their needs and making sure that the relief doesn't just go rushing past the Black community, it gets to the Black community. She's she's a she's a generation older than the most of the young men working in the uh, administration already. There's a few older African American men who've come in as advisors, but she's she's a generation older. She's she's been a grassroots organizer. She doesn't come from the the social science background that they have, and she immediately seizes upon this idea that they've got information that's so important and so critical for everyone to hear, but they've had trouble getting it, getting it heard in part because they don't have any channel to the White House. Roosevelt isn't listening to them and he isn't going to hear them because they're blocked by their, their white bosses in, in part because they're not able to dramatize the information. She is an incredibly charismatic person. Anybody who will, who ever heard Bethune speak, never forgets her because she's able to deliver a message in a way that's completely and totally captivating, engaging. And she actually, her educational background is at Moody Bible Institute as an evangelist. So she brings that skill into, into the, into the New Deal administration. Now the black cabinet, they exist before she comes, but they're fragmented. Weaver has his friends and they gather and play poker for a poker night in his basement. And they strategize and discuss incredibly important um, issues and solutions to black American problems. 
And then there's the older appointees who really aren't in the kind of Weaver Ivy League crowd. Most of them are working on their own or socializing with their friends, trying to work out solutions. And then there's Al Smith, who is a graduate of Howard University, and he's from Arkansas. He's grown up in poverty, and he doesn't really fit quite anywhere. He has a few friends at Howard, and he runs his ideas past Howard. And what Bethune says in the summer of 1936 is we have to work together. She actually summons everybody to her home. And if Mary McLeod Bethune calls, you don't say no. She's she's she, you you she's irresistible, and she refuses to ever hear no. And so they meet in her home, and as they gather together, she says, "We've got to work together. We've got to share our information across our divisions. We're working siloed, and and we're not making progress. But if we work together, cooperate, share information, we're going to be able to make a lot more a lot more change within the New Deal." Now, Susan, <laughs> note this is happening in the summer of 1936, and the FDR is running, right? He's running for president, right? So so <laughs> there, I think there's a lot going on there, more than just a commitment to extending relief to Black people by bringing Bethune in as a voice. I think that it's fully apparent that Bethune is also going to deliver Black votes. And this is where... You go back to 1932, which is a trickle of African-Americans moving over and voting for, for Democratic candidates to what's going to become a flood under Mary McLeod Bethune. Because first on the agenda, after she calls everybody to meet in August of 1936 in her home, is to get FDR reelected. Because argument being, if you don't reelect FDR, there's no hope under the Republicans. There, the New Deal will disappear and we will go back to a government that is structured very differently. Bethune believes very strongly in Roosevelt's vision of a strong government presence. What's different, I think, in her vision is, is, and I think the other Black cabinet members share this, is is that the New Deal isn't just an economic recovery program, that it's a whole shift in governing, the idea that the government's responsible for every American citizen's welfare. And that doesn't just mean your economic welfare, it's your political welfare. It's your social welfare. You need political rights, you need civil rights, and that this can be activated through the philosophy of the New Deal. And so I think this, she she has a big vision for America. And I think her vision is shared uh, by her good friend, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so she, they hit the trail and they support FDR in 36. And you find that um, there's a real migration of Black voters, uh, a significant switch over and voting for FDR. But people don't necessarily switch parties. People will stay Republican, but they're Re- Republicans who vote for Democrats. And so I think that's really interesting. As more Black voters are not necessarily changing party, but changing their votes, what happens in this second administration? What kind of changes do we see? Uh, and how much are the Black cabinet responsible for those changes in FDR or or? Or Eleanor? Well, as you pointed out, it's kind of the heyday or the golden age of the Black cabinet because she's able to get people to work together. She she has access to Eleanor Roosevelt, which gives the Black cabinet access to the White House. And um, she's able to also convince the government to allow her to sponsor two major conferences. It's the first conferences ever sponsored by the U.S. government to explore 
um, the problems of African-Americans. And at these conferences, people gather together, not just across the federal government in Washington, D.C. You have most of the major black activists, most of the major African-American leaders, publishers across the country gathering together in Washington, D.C., coming together and putting their minds together on how to solve the problems in black America. And they, they published two um, proceedings from the conference, which are even today remarkable because so many of the problems that they identify and the solutions are what we're still grappling with today and talking about solving in very similar ways. So she's able to, I think, marshal the group together. As a whole, the group's able to get more funding for their programs. So to get um, to get the money on the ground to Black Americans in their communities to you know really begin recovery. I mean, they were able to start recovery before she arrived, but now you find more money flowing into these programs. And I think that uh, the the ranks of Black advisors expand, the number of Black advisors grows. I mean, before, again, she came, the number was growing, but it really explodes after this. So I think that there's, as you mentioned earlier, too, um, throughout the federal government, the presence of a Black voice is 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 new at the federal level in the executive kind of departments, and that grows and grows and grows. And what they confront is the, a very segregated Washington D.C. I guess I'm going into all the accomplishments that they made. I hope that's okay. No, it's great. No, no, it's great. Um, I mean, I think that it's it important to know that this group that doesn't have any sort of official status, they are self-constituted, self-institutionalized, sort of self-organized, yet they are able to come out with this list of accomplishments. No, I think it's, I think it's terrific. Um, yeah, I think, I think what's interesting too is that what people don't know is they, they call it FDR's Black Cabinet, and it's not his Black Cabinet. In fact, when he's approached to organize one early on, he says no. And even when, she, when Bethune circles back to him and says, I really do think that there needs to be something more official, he, he will continually say no to it. It's, it's, and so, as you say, they constitute themselves, they run themselves. And I, it, it's, it's a kind of interesting feature that emerges within his administration that he gets, gets credit for. So, and I think that it, they make a, an amazing mark on that New Deal. I think the New Deal is very different because of their presence, despite the fact that they weren't, permitted to officially emerge as an official advisory body. Nonetheless, when they start to coordinate, they really get things rolling. I mean, we wouldn't have, um, I think, the they set the foundation for anti-discrimination clauses within federal contracts, but also figured out how that they could be enforced. It was one thing Weaver said to have an anti-discrimination clause in a contract, but you had to enforce it. And they, they, they devised ways that those things could be enforced and integrating that workplace. There, there's so much that they were able to accomplish in the time that they. And in addition to being able to come up with these concrete rule changes, right. That, that, that create the anti-discrimination principle and then the, the practices that will actually make that real in the enforcement. There's sort of a third thing running through the book, which is this, just remarkable racism that uh, is coming out, not just of um, the remnants of past Democrats, but FDR himself and 
you include a memo that I, I, I can't help reading because I was at, uh, at Hyde Park at the FDR uh, archive, and I, w- I read this memo through glass and just gasped. Like people looked at me. And it's from, it's from um, Eleanor to the president, typed, very formal, and it says, I've been asked to call your attention to the importance of having a Negro in a position who can actually confer with the president occasionally on problems that are pertinent to Negroes, and who can have a very close affiliation with the undersecretaries of the president as to the Negro's cause, ER. This is from 1941. And scribbled in FDR's hand is a big no, and it says, no, any more than I can put in a Jew as such, or a spiritualist as such, explain to Mrs. Bethune, better to have a white person, FDR. Um, and I just think that it, the book really captures what they're up against, not just in terms of appointments and policy, but of a general idea that this is, this is, this is ridiculous. It's, it's like a spiritualist. The, the comparison is, is, is so um, trivializing of Black America's concerns for their, their own lives. Um, and they seem to also be sort of both trying to deal with the concrete in the midst of this, of this wider racism. Yeah, I think that Bethune is really interesting on this because she, she was very much a fan of the Roosevelts, as I'm sure you know, most people know, that she was... Those are people who know both, and she's a big defender of them. And um, the real person in this equation who has their consciousness raised is Eleanor. I mean, her friendship with Bethune deepens, and she, the two of them, I, I think, uh, ally together, and she learns to be an, what we call an anti racist from Bethune. Franklin Roosevelt doesn't go on that journey, I don't see. I don't see him him coming around in, in any way. It, he's an interesting kind of enigma. I think a lot of people talk about his being unable to read him. The The White House staff, who was African-American, found him, rated him highly, found him to, they would defend him and say, you know, he wasn't a racist and that he treated people equally and with kindness. And um, there was a lot of familiarity with the White House staff. But in terms of policy and acting on on things like this he really he's Bethune's point about him was is that he he Bethune defended him and said he was a pragmatist that he knew what he could or couldn't do but the reality of that is that what he's doing is he's doesn't want to lose the white south and so he continually caters to them and he's always worried first that the white south's going to go against the new deal and and end up destroying that. He says that to the head of the NAACP, I can't support anti-lynching because I'll lose the white South and they'll destroy the new deal. And we won't be able to get out of the economic quagmire we're in. And then later on the memo that you just read, uh, the war era where Bethune is saying, you know, I really think you need an African-American advisor to talk to you about the, 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 the issues that African-Americans are facing. And he says, no, better a white person again. He's defaulting to this idea that he might offend white Southerners who, in a lot of ways, dominate his inner circle, especially in, in the military. And, and so it's, it's disheartening to face that reality about Roosevelt. I think 
in a case like anti-lynching laws, especially as you get later into his administration, he probably could have supported those and not lost the white South. There were a number of white Southerners who were themselves turning against, against lynching. And so it's disappointing to not see him arrive and do the things that we'd like to think that he would have done. And he has this reputation for being a liberal on race and, and in part because of the black cabinet, which he actually mm-hmm. never sanctioned, which is the great irony, but also part of Bethune because Bethune would defend him and say, well, you know, he knew what he could do in the time that he lived in and only did just that. But I, I kind of think that's a generous phrase. Yeah, you're the second the- author in a week to have a, a, ra- a, 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 a um, very negative appraisal. Uh, Suzanne Mettler and Robert Lieberman were talking about their appraisal of FDR in the 30s. And they were kind of shocked at some of what they found. I guess I guess this is part of unpacking um, a mythical presidency. Um, I could talk about this book with you forever. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's terrific and accessible, and I really recommend it to everyone because it, it has so much richness, so well written, um, really great people. If you know them a little bit, and some people that nobody's ever heard of, I, I, I wanted to ask you two things unrelated, but I'll just throw them at you, and you can decide what to pick or not pick. One of the things I noticed was a lot of highly educated women working as secretaries, um, and but seeming to have a great deal of influence. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how it is that that some women, besides um, Bethune, did influence the process along the way. And the second question, 180 degrees away, is as we're speaking, uh, Joe Biden is naming members of his cabinet. And, and I'm wondering how this political history helps us understand how we constitute cabinets now, the care for representation or not care for representation. Do we still have these kinds of powerful side groups meeting and trying to influence the presidency? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so your first question first, right? <laughs> um, and I'm glad you asked that first question because you could write a whole book on the the women who came in and served in the clerical positions in the two black cabinet members. And most prominent is Lucia May Pitts, who uh, serves as uh, Clark Foreman, who was a white administrator's uh, secretary, and then later on becomes Robert Weaver's secretary. And Susan, what I didn't get to write about was she organized the other African-American women who followed her into government service. Corrine Robinson was one of them. Um, She organizes them into their own group called the Outer Guard. And I didn't get to write about them, but they kind of organized their own uh, black cabinet. And I know even less about them, but I know that they met. I know that they talked about strategy. They talked about their jobs and shared what was going on in their offices. And they were more than secretaries, as you point out. Uh, they had college educations as well, and they had been, a number of them, educated in the social sciences or in business schools. And and their their bosses used them as advisors. In fact, Lucia May Pitts is sent out to investigate um, conditions in Black America uh, um, and report back to her office and make recommendations and she makes recommendations on appointments of other clerical staff, but I'm convinced also of other black 
um, male advisors in, in positions of authority. So she and her colleagues in the secretarial pool, they have, well, I shouldn't really say secretarial pool because they're assigned specifically to individual administrators. Um, I think that they have a fairly significant role in this, although they were never regarded as black cabinet members and never at uh, significantly in the numbers at Bethune's meetings. Pitts did go to Bethune's meetings, so uh, later on especially. So, um, and she was taking minutes in some cases. Uh, so we know often because of her detailed minutes uh, what happened. And also she attempted to write a history of the black cabinet herself. And because she attempted to write that history as a memoir, uh, we know a lot about what they were doing. So, so, so that group has been ignored and they're really important. And they, I think, still exist today. The African-American women who are serving in um, stenographer as stenographers and in secretarial positions. So, so they're, they are significant and they were a presence as well. There was a, another um, African-American woman, Constance Daniel, who served in the department of agriculture, who was, was an administrator but for the most part, most of the women who came in um, later in those positions came in during the war. So, so it opens up a little bit for black women, but, but as a whole, um, not significantly, but yeah, the, the women in, in those roles as secretaries, they, they played an important part. So the second question. So in terms of the incoming administration in Biden, I think that Biden's going to continue the tradition that's started in in the Roosevelt administration of incorporating black voices into into um, the administration. I think that it, Biden's in a in a much different era, and that that tradition of consulting with African Americans has grown and become more genuine and more real and more direct. I think that. The presence of Kamala Harris is significant. I think that Black women have been the backbone of the Democratic Party. And I think when we look at the Black cabinet in their era, you see how significant African-American women are to the history of the Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party, not only um, bringing votes in, but shifting the ideology of that party. So I think that that's uh, now a long tradition and it, it's it's not unique now. Um I think that you have a long tradition of presidents in general consulting with um, their own sub-cabinets, like all the way back to Andrew Jackson's kitchen cabinet, and then Harding had the Ohio gang that he talked to. But the black cabinet of Roosevelt's era was something different. It was people who weren't a part of the inner circle, and they were unwelcome, and they weren't really old friends of the president. I think now you have official channels, however, that African-Americans and other marginalized Americans have access to in terms of exerting influence. I've been thinking about this a lot, though. The, the genius of the Black cabinet, what Bethune realizes is, is that it isn't just enough to have a Black cabinet or a Black members of an administration. It, 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 you know, and it, you don't need this kind of to be used as public relations tools. What you have to be able to do is be in positions where you have influence. And now we've seen for many years now, African-Americans occupying positions of major influence within the president's cabinet. I think notable is Robert Weaver, who is a member of the black cabinet during the FDR period, and then becomes the first African-American member of a White House cabinet. He's the 
appointed by Lyndon Johnson as the uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He breaks through. And since then, we've had members of that white elite White House cabinet who are African-American. And uh, you know, Biden's going to continue that tradition for sure. But the, like I said, the genius of Bethune is it's not enough. You have to have channels to communicate. African-American problems, solving them is complex. And so you have to be able to talk across the departments. So this is something I've been thinking about and, and trying to write a little bit about the ideas to not just break into the official ranks, but to be able to coordinate across the, these ranks in order to attack these really, really significant immediate problems like uh, police brutality. That's an issue that crosses over a number of those departments. Black poverty, you can't just deal with black poverty, say, in, in, the, ha- uh, in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. You, you have to do, deal with it in the Housing of Commerce. It's a labor issue. It's a Justice Department issue. So you have to have these conversations. And they can't just be conversations. They have to be um, policymaking. They have um, policymaking opportunities. So, so I think that hopefully that environment is, is there and that, that that can occur in this administration. So uh, that, that's, uh, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for. I don't know what the political scientists are saying, though, Susan. <laughs> well, I think that the political scientists will need to read this book because I don't think you can actually have the conversation about what Biden should do without taking a look at what I would consider to be a form of a case study of presidential decision-making in a past time, but a time that is really similar, especially in terms of partisanship, right? Because there is this question among political scientists of the black vote has been consistent for the Democratic Party. Simultaneously, there's been complaints that the Democratic Party therefore can take the black vote for granted. And what you're pointing to is a period in time in which the Republican Party very much took the black vote for granted. Had they not, had they thrown even small uh, policies, procedures, um, um, verbal changes in how politics was spoken about in terms of race, they might have actually been able to keep uh, a group of Americans that felt very, very um, romantically uh, about about the party of Lincoln. Okay, we could talk about this forever, but um, I, I, I do want to welcome people to read this terrific book. Um, I've been talking to Jill Watts, professor of history at California State University, San Marcos, and the book is The Black Cabinet, The Untold Story of African Americans and Politics During the Age of Roosevelt. It's published by Grove Press in 2020. And um, Take a look for it at your local brick-and-mortar bookshop or uh, order it on Bookshop, which will get it to your door but will support your brick-and-mortars. Thanks, Jill. Before we go, what, what are you working on right now? Oh, um, I, I'm thinking I'm going to do a biography of Mary McLeod Bethune. That's, that's what I've started and what I've been working on. Now. She's so compelling and so important. And there's just not anything comprehensive about her. So, yeah, so yeah that's that's my goal. Well, I, I look forward to reading it, and you'll have to come back to new books when you're done. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I so enjoyed this conversation. 
Thanks so much. I learned so much from your book and the conversation.